Well, welcome to Church Experience. We are glad that you guys are here and a part of an incredible series that we are doing this summer called Vertical. And this series is all about learning how to pray, how to have a conversation with God. I've been in ministry a really long time and I have had the opportunity to work with lots and lots of people. And I never cease to be amazed when we talk about the subject of prayer, uh, of how difficult Christians make prayer out to be. When in reality, it's just about us having a conversation with God. I wanna give you two opening statements here today that I think are super important to us understanding why prayer matters. The first statement that I wanna give you, and I want you to jot this down because this is one of those things that you wanna go back and kinda read over and process and wrestle with in your own life. But the first statement goes like this. When we are praying, uh, what we are doing is, is we're aligning ourselves vertically with God. In other words, we're making our vertical relationship with God right so that our horizontal relationship with people can be right. So we'll say it this way, when I'm right with God, I'm right with people. And so one of the reasons that we are praying is because we're aligning ourselves vertically. We want to be right with the people around us, but we can't be right with people if we're not right with God. And so prayer is aligning us vertically. But the other reason that prayer is important is because we're aligning our will with God's will. Now, a lot of people, when they pray, they are trying to get God to do what they want them to do. They're trying to align God's will with their will. But what prayer is really all about is about us aligning our will with his. And so I want to just start this off this morning by saying this. Because this is going to really help set the tone for the direction that we're going and, and what we're doing and the conversation that we're having here today. But prayer is really just about having a passionate pursuit of a holy and righteous God. You're in a passionate pursuit of God. And in a passionate pursuit of what God has for you and what he wants for you. What he has for his life. It's, it's about being in pursuit of his will and his way for your life. And it really comes down to you really believing, does God have the best for me? And does he have the capacity to lead me into that best? Several years ago, there was a psychologist who did some work with her students. She had 50 students in a room. And she came up with this incredible experiment, this project that they were working on. And she was teaching them a philosophy uh, and a, and a uh, psychological phenomena that is known today now as learned helplessness. And here's how the project went. She divided the room up. She put 25 people on one side and 25 people on the other side. And she gave them a task. And here's what the, the task was this, simply this. I'm going to give you a word. Everybody in the class, there's going to be a word on a piece of paper. And all you have to do in 30 seconds is I want you to... Uh, change the letters of that word to make a new word. And so the, the clock started, 30 seconds, everybody went to work, and she stopped the clock, and she said this. She said, okay, how many of you in the room were able to change that first word and make it a new word? Everybody on the right side of the room, they raised their hand, they got it. Nobody on the left-hand side of the room raised their hand. So you could hear a little bit of murmuring and a little bit of conversation going on, a little bit of awkwardness in the room. She said, okay, okay, let, let's try this again. We're, we're gonna do it again. I'm gonna give you another word, or there's another word on the paper there. I want you to take that word, and I want you to, you're gonna have 30 seconds, you're gonna change it to another word. Just rearrange the letters, make it another word. 
So she started the clock, gave him 30 seconds, and after those 30 seconds were up, she stopped the clock and she said, okay, how many of you were able to change the second word to a different word? Well, everybody on the right-hand side of the room raised their hand, and nobody on the left-hand side of the room raised their hand. Well, by this time, people were starting to freak out a little bit. And the people on the left-hand side of the room were starting to get a little more vocal about their experience and what was happening, but you could feel the tension. So she says, again, she says, okay, we're going to do this one more time. She says, I'm going to give you another piece of paper, and on that piece of paper, there's going to be a word. We're going to try this one more time. So she gives them 30 seconds, and she, at the end of 30 seconds, she stops the clock, and she says, okay, how many of you in the room got it? You imagine probably how the story ended here. Everybody on the right-hand side of the room raised their hands. They were able to change the letters around and make another word. This time, something different happened. A couple of people on the left-hand side of the room actually raised their hand and said they were able to change it around and make a new word. And so by this time, most of the people, the 25 students on the left-hand side of the room, were so frustrated and they were so irritated, and they were so mad that they could not figure this out. She even asked them, before she explained what was going on, she said, would you mind telling me how you feel right now? And so some of the people began to speak up, and one kid said, I feel extremely frustrated. One, uh, one of the kids said, I'm, I'm angry. I don't understand how everyone else can get it but me, or how come nobody on this side of the room is figuring it out? One of the kids said, I feel like I don't belong in this class. Clearly, I'm not smart enough to be here. And so here's what she began to explain. She said, I want to share something with you. I pulled a little bit of a dirty trick on you. And she said, I set you up for this social experiment, but I want to prove something to you. She said, everybody on the right-hand side of the room had words that were interchangeable. You could change the letters around, and you could make a new word. She said the people on the left had words that were impossible to interchange. You could not change the letters around and make a new word. So they didn't have the same words. She said, but here's what's fascinating. Everybody in the room, every single person in the room had the exact same third word. The exact same third word. And she said what happened in about 90 seconds of time is, is that everybody on the left-hand side of the room, because they could not figure out what the first two words were, they constructed a framework of helplessness. They felt helpless in the situation, and when they faced a word that was actually interchangeable, they had already determined that they couldn't do it, and so they create, because they created a framework that they couldn't do it, they just gave up and said, I'm helpless. I can't do it. I'm not even going to try. And what she was giving them the illustration of what she was showing them is how we, often we do this in life. How psychologically we find ourselves in helpless situations and find ourselves in what we would call maybe insurmountable tasks. And because we can't figure those tasks out, because we can't figure out how to fix what is broken or how to fix the problem, what we end up doing is creating a framework that we can't do anything, or we create a framework of what we call learned helplessness. Here's what's really interesting about this pattern and how this works, is, is that when we operate in helplessness, or when we become helpless in our behavior, 
or we determine that we're, in help, we're helpless in all things, that helplessness becomes hopelessness. And that hopelessness eventually becomes depression. So, so you, you've all been there. We've all been in those moments or those seasons in our life where we have felt these helpless moments, right? We have faced helpless moments in our marriage. We have faced helpless moments in our finances, right? You've sat and looked at your finances or you've looked at your budget and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to make it this week. I don't know how we're going to survive this month. If anybody in the room is a parent, you've looked at your parenting, you've looked at your children, right? If you have teenagers, you looked at your teenagers and you have felt extremely helpless. I have no idea what I'm doing and I have no idea how to get to the other side of this or I have no idea how to move through or to get to the other side of this crisis. And, and here's how it usually goes is that when we face something in our life that we would consider to be a crisis, when we come against something that we would consider to be an insurmountable task, what ends up happening out of a place of self-preservation is we go to work or we put the pressure on ourselves to try to figure it out. We put the pressure on ourselves to try to make it right or to do whatever we can to get to the other side of it. And so we start grasping for straws and we start reading every book that we can read and getting our hands on everything that we can get our hands on to try to fix what isn't working. But every one of us know to, this to be true that at some point you discover that you don't have the answers for everything. And there are certain things that we face in life, there are certain things that we come up against in life um, that are insurmountable. And, and when we put our hope in us, in me to figure it out, or in someone else to get it right for me, that helplessness becomes hopelessness, and eventually that hopelessness fully matured becomes depression because we realize there is some things or there are things in life that we just can't fix. There are things that we cannot do on our own. I say this often to people that I'm working with. I'll make the statement, the three most powerful words that you will ever say in your life is, I need help. But the question or the response to that, I need help, is who are you turning to when you're in that need of help? When you're feeling completely and totally helpless, who is it that you're running to? Who is it that you're turning to? I'm not against at all turning to people and to getting people in your corner and having wise counsel. I think there's, I think it's smart. There's a lot of wisdom in having good people, godly people around you. I'm not against, of course, just going to counselors and doctors and all of those things. Those are very important pieces and components to our life. But the question I think that we have to wrestle with today, and this is a question that we're going to be faced with when we face these insurmountable moments, these seasons of life where we feel completely and totally helpless, which, by the way, creates a narrative that everything we're facing is completely and totally helpless. We have to wrestle with this question. The question is this, is do I believe that God cares about me and that he has the ability to lead me into his best? This is something that every one of us at some point have to wrestle with when we're facing those helpless moments. Do I believe 
that God really does care about me. And he has the capacity to lead me in to his best. Because here's what you've discovered and here's what I've discovered about humanity. Is that we're flawed. We fail. We can't do everything right. We won't do everything right. I can't tell you how many times I've put hope in me to try to figure it out and how many times me, myself, I've let myself down because I couldn't get it right. Or how many times I have put hope in somebody else to get it right for me and how they have let me down or they have disappointed me because that's what humans do. We're flawed by sin. So when we're facing those moments of helplessness, the question that we have to wrestle with is, am I going to try to figure this out and continue to create a framework of helplessness that eventually becomes hopelessness, that eventually becomes depression, or am I going to really face the reality that there is a God in heaven who's fully and completely aware of who I am, what I'm going through, my hurts, my habits, my hang-ups, I have a God that I don't have to wake up every morning and bring him up to speed on my story because he's fully immersed in my story and what's going on and what's happening in my life. And do I believe that he has the capacity to lead me into the very best? There was a woman in the first century who happened to be alive during the time that Jesus was on the earth. And... A fascinating story, Dr. Luke in the, in the Gospel of Luke and Mark, they record this story of a woman who had faced an insurmountable task. It was a health crisis in, in her life. And she had done absolutely everything she knew to do to try to fix what was broken inside of her. If you're familiar at all with the story, it's the story of the woman who had the issue, the Bible called it the issue of blood. We're not exactly sure what that meant, but here's what we do know is, is that whatever this issue was, she was carrying it for 12 years, and in those days, if you had an issue of blood, if there was something wrong with your blood, you were considered contaminated. You were an unclean or an impure person, and so not only did you have to deal with your internal sickness or the sickness that was happening in your body, if it had to do with your blood, they would uh, sort of cast you out from society. You were not welcome in a social environment and, and part of uh, you know, the, the society that you grew up in, your home or the places you went to shop, the places that you, uh, the market, you were not allowed to be a part of that. So for 12 years, and by the way, this woman's disease, whatever it was, was very public because she had spent every ounce of money, every bit of time and energy she had spent with doctors and specialists and people who could, who could fix, in her mind, could fix what was broken inside of her. And, and, and it seemed, and maybe you, you can relate to this, it seemed like that every turn that she went to, every new possibility or idea or concept seemed to fail right before her eyes. Nothing was working. In fact, we're going to see in just a moment in the scripture that, at, that, that the more she tried, the, the harder she, you know, the worse she failed and the worse it got. I want to take a look uh, at Mark chapter 5 and verse 24 through 34 here this morning. I want to show you this incredible account that was made of the story. It says that a large crowd followed and pressed around him, talking about Jesus as he was passing through the town. It said, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 
She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So here's the story is, is that everything she had, she was taking all of her hope and she was putting it in herself to figure it out or in someone else to get it right for her. And for 12 years, at every turn, every dime she spent, every minute she spent in the hospital, every minute she spent talking to specialists and doctors, it only got worse. And so you can see this framework is being created now where this helplessness that she had is now quickly becoming hopelessness because at every turn, it was bad news. But, I love this, look at this next part. She heard about Jesus. This is incredible. She heard about a man named Jesus. And she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately, immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was free from suffering. So guys, think about this for a moment. I want you to get this picture. For 12 years, she is spending her life trying to figure it out. For 12 years, she's going to someone else to get it right for her. And for 12 years, she has been failing at every turn. Her helplessness was quickly becoming hopelessness. And that hopelessness was going to mature and become depression if she wasn't already there. But then she hears about a man named Jesus. And she hears this story about how he'd been healing people. In fact, everyone that he encountered who was sick, he healed. And in her mind, I believe that this was her last string of hope. And so instead of going to the doctor, instead of running to the next specialist, instead of trying to search her brain to figure out what was wrong, she moved to a place of surrender. And she said, I'm going to turn to the one who I've heard has been healing everyone else. And I'm going to give that a shot. And so she pursues Jesus in this moving crowd. And you can, you, you can imagine and picture she's breaking through the people with massive desperation. She is desperate now to get to Jesus. And in her mind, all she needed to do was just touch his robe and she would be healed. And the Bible tells us that as she reached out to touch his robe, she felt something move, a warmth perhaps, move through her body. And she knew in this moment that she was healed. I love the response that Jesus has. Look at this. It says, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, the disciples said, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see what he had done or who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and she fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. 
Go in peace today from your suffering. Can I show you how she flipped the script? She had this framework of helplessness. Nothing she did was working. That helplessness had become hopelessness. But when she heard about Jesus, she went from helplessness to hopefulness because she heard that there was somebody that was actually healing the impossible and doing the supernatural. She went from helplessness to hopefulness, and this is the powerful flip of the script in her life, that hopefulness went to desperation. See, helplessness to hopelessness becomes depression, but helplessness to hopefulness becomes desperation. Where was the shift? The shift was where she chose to place her hope. Because when I place my hope in man and humanity, it becomes hopelessness. When I'm hoping in the one who can do for me what I cannot do for myself, it becomes hopefulness. And that hopefulness fully matured becomes a craving desperation for a God who can heal me. A God who has the power to change my circumstances. A God who has the ability to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And this is the power of prayer. This is what prayer does and what prayer means. See, the difference is is that depression isolates. Desperation motivates. When you are trying to find your answers in man and in yourself and in a book and in some sort of a YouTube video or something that you're searching online, and I'm not against those things, but if you're trying to do those things first, we'll find ourselves becoming helpless to hopeless and operating in what we call situational depression. Do you understand that the depression rate in the United States of America is through the roof? And I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm talking about situational depression where our circumstances are determining how we respond in life. But when we become desperate, desperate to pursue the one who can do for me what I cannot do for myself, everything changes. This is why Paul was writing to the church of Philippi. And he's in this incredibly depressing season of life. He's shackled up and he's in a dungeon. He's in a jail cell because he was preaching the gospel. Because what he was preaching and what he was teaching was in conflict with the religious hierarchy and and he was creating waves and so the only way to stop him was to put him in jail. So Paul is writing a letter to the church of Philippi from a jail cell. Don't know if anybody in the room's ever been to jail, but if you have, you know, it ain't a great place to be. And here's what he says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, what transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 
See, Paul had an opportunity in this place of helplessness. I can't get out of this situation alone. That helplessness, if he would have allowed it, if he would have put his hope in himself or someone else to try to figure it out for him, would have become hopelessness. And that hopelessness would have become depression for him. But instead, Paul said, I have hope that there's someone greater than this situation. I have hope that there is someone who is bigger than my problem. And so I'm putting my hope in him. And with anticipation and in desperation, I'm going to make my request known to a holy God. And watch this, he said, and that's why I don't have to be anxious about anything. I'm sitting in a jail cell where I may die, but I have no anxiety. I have no depression. There's no angst because I put my hope in God and I'm desperately pursuing his will for my life. Everybody in the room, everybody in the room knows what it feels like to face an insurmountable situation or a crisis in their life. A crisis that in their own power and in their own ability, they cannot get to the other side of it. Some of you are here today, you're facing a marriage crisis. And every day that you wake up and your feet hit the floor, you're faced head on with this crisis. And the verdict is still out if this thing is even going to work. Things have been said that can't be taken back. Promises and trusts have been broken. And when you think about your relationship and your marriage, it wasn't what it was five years ago or ten years ago. You have this new crisis, this new thing that you're facing. And when you look at it, it's like I can't or we can't get to the other side of this. For some of you, it's finances. You just cannot seem to get ahead. Every time you take a step forward, it seems like something comes along and takes you five steps back. Sometimes it's our own behaviors and our own actions or inability to live on budget. Whatever the case is, we feel like we just are getting completely whacked financially. And when we look at our bills or we look at our future, we're like, there's no way we can get to the other side of this. For some of you, it's a health crisis. You've just received word from your doctor, and the word that you received is is not a good word. You had to go home and you had to share this with your family. For some, you've been dealing with and battling with something for years. For some, it's mental health. It's anxiety. You wake up every day and you just live in this blank. You're blanketed. You're covered with anxiousness and anxiety. And it doesn't matter how many books you read or how many videos you watch or how much therapy you do, it just seems to get worse. Like at every turn, it just gets worse and worse. We know what it's like to face those insurmountable tasks. And here's what's happened for so many of us. Is it because we have these one or two things in our life that we cannot seem to get to the other side of We determine everything in life to be insurmountable. Everything we face, we face with an attitude of, I can't, shouldn't, it's going to fall apart, not going to work, nothing works out anyway. My whole life's been falling apart for years. This is just one more thing to add to the the bucket of things that I'm carrying around. We live in this constant energy of negativity. 
And here's what we've discovered. We've discovered that we cannot fix this on our own. Several months ago, in fact, a year ago, almost to this date, I faced one of the most difficult things I had ever faced, and I'll even go as far as to say one of the darkest things I've ever faced in my entire life. I'm talking about ultimate betrayal. The type of betrayal that you wake up one morning, things are going great, you wake up the next morning, and you realize you're in the middle of a crisis. People that we were involved with, that we were working with, and we were doing ministry with, and things that we were doing together collectively ended abruptly based on lies and scandalization and malignment and all these things. And for seven days, seven days, I racked my brain. I tried to figure out how I was going to get out of it. I tried to figure out how in the world this could happen to my family. I remember I live on a ranch. We have a cattle ranch in South Georgia area. I went out to my porch. I would go out there every night, and I would look out over the fields, and I would feel so dark, and I would feel so incredibly helpless. One of the things that had happened is that every dime of money was taken from us. I remember sitting out there going, what is the worth I have to my family? I can't even feed my kids. Like, how am I going to do this? And the more I tried to figure it out, and the more I turned to people to try to help me figure it out, the more helpless I felt. And the more helpless I became, the more hopeless I became. I remember saying at one point to my wife, I said, she was sitting on the porch with me, and I said, why are we even here? Why do we even exist? Like, what is the point of living if you're gonna ha we have to live with this? I could feel that hopelessness becoming depression. For seven days, I don't think I ate but a couple times. I hardly got any sleep. I did not sleep but maybe a couple hours, a few hours for those seven days. I got on the phone with somebody, ironically somebody that I mentored and coached. And he asked me this question. He said, Doc, he said, what are the power passages of Scripture that you're relying on and taking to the Father as a request in prayer? And I, I paused for a moment. And i got to be honest with you, in the moment, that question frustrated me. Because my first thought was, I don't have time for that. I've got to figure this problem out. But I paused for a moment. And I said, I'm, in, I'm embarrassed to say this, Dale. I don't have any. I haven't done that. He said, well, well maybe we should stop all the other stuff. Maybe we should start there. I immediately hung up the phone, I got my wife, and we came, went into the living room, and we sat down, and I said, okay, here, here's what we're going to do. 
We're going to go through the Scripture. Everything that is significant to what we're going through, we're going to take a passage of Scripture, and we're going to put it out on a piece of paper. We're going to type it out, and we're going to put it out on paper. These are going to become our power passages. And what we're going to do is we're going to take every one of these passages, and we're going to petition. We're going to bring it to the Father. And we're going to ask God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so we found passages of Scripture like peace, how to live in peace and how to turn your battles over to God and be still and do nothing and God will fight for you. God will battle for you. And so we begin to take these passages and we begin to bring them before the Father and we would just bring them in petition and prayer. I kid you not, within a couple of hours, I had a washing of peace come over me. I was just covered in peace. I ate dinner that night I went to bed and I actually slept. I was exhausted. I slept that night. And we continued to do this day after day after day, just petitioning and bringing it before the Father. We said, we're not going to try to figure this out. We're not going to try to control the outcome. The more we try to control, we don't have the power to control. The more out of control we become. We're not going to try to control outcomes. We're just going to turn it over to the Father. We did this day after day after day after day, and through that entire season, we operated in a spirit of peace and happiness. But here's the most supernatural part. We did not miss a single meal. We did not miss paying a single bill. We did not miss a single stride in our business. In fact, Everything that was taken from us, God restored tenfold. And we saw God do this supernatural work in our life. And here's what happened. The moment, and here's why it happened. The moment that we, st- we stopped trying to figure it out and putting our hope in someone else to get it right for us or to fix it for us, we went to God. That hopelessness became hopefulness. That depression became desperation. And we just continued to pursue a holy God who cared more about us in our situation than we did and had the capacity to get in the middle of it and do the supernatural. Some of you in this room haven't seen a miracle in a long time, maybe ever, because your habit is to run to yourself to try to figure it out or someone else to get it right for you when there is a God who is waiting for you to desperately pursue him and to find out what it is that he has for your life. Here's what has to happen. We can fix a lot of depression in the world without medication. If people would learn to stop putting their hope in themselves to figure it out or in someone else to get it right for them. They started putting their hope in a God who is a good shepherd and a good father has the ability to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. When we start to live and we start to act at that level, we will watch depression become desperation. We will watch isolation turn into motivation. 
Things begin to shift when we bring God into the middle of our story. And so the question that you have to wrestle with today is this. Am I going to keep trying to figure this out? Am I going to be the one that has to fix all of this? Because I can't. Am I going to press the pause button? Am I going to fall to my knees? Pour my heart out to God. And say, God, I need you in the middle of this story. I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. And I'm going to make a commitment to desperately pursue you. And I'm going to patiently wait while I passionately pursue. I'm going to let you complete the story of my life. I can't make that decision for you. It's a decision that you have to make for you and for your family. But I can tell you this right now. When you do, when you trust that process in prayer, instead of going horizontal, you go vertical. When you trust that process, there will be a peace that comes over your life that as Paul explained to the church of Philippi, completely, totally unexplainable. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. Things are chaotic around me. Things seem to be falling down around me. But I have a peace that transcends and passes all understanding because I'm trusting God through this process. My prayer today, for me, for you, for all of us, is whatever that insurmountable task is that you're facing, that insurmountable task in life, that will take it to the one who has the ability to take care of it for you. If you're sitting here today, you're watching online perhaps, maybe this is a question about life and you just can't figure out this whole life thing. You've thought about your purpose. You've thought about eternity. You've thought about what is, is there life after this and you've read every book. You've watched every video. You've, you've just, your, your mind is filled with so much stuff. For some of you, it's a matter of turning to Jesus just like the lady did in the book of Mark. Just reaching out saying, Jesus, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to trust my life with you. And, and I'm, I'm going to put my faith and my trust in you for my eternity. And I'm going to let you be the Lord of my life. I'm tired of trying to figure this out. I'm going to let you be the Lord of my life. Regardless of where you're at in your circumstance or situation today, it looks the same for all of us. Falling to our knees, reaching out your hand before a holy, righteous, sovereign God, and saying these words, this simple, 
God, do for me what I cannot do for myself. And believing that he has the ability to do it. Father, thank you for every example that we read in Scripture. Every story that we've heard in history. Every reference that we have of those who are in those just those moments of helplessness. They couldn't figure it out. They didn't know what to do. But when they turned to you and they put their hope in you, that helplessness became hopefulness. And they began to desperately pursue you. May we be people who follow that example in our own life. Praying for everyone in the room, everyone watching online, that they will have this moment with you where they just hit the pause button, where they relinquish the outcomes, they stop trying to control the outcomes. And they start trusting you to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. And they begin to desperately pursue you. Whether it takes a day or seven days or seven months or seven years, they're in pursuit of you. Because here's what we know to be true, Father. As we are in pursuit of you, we live our lives with hopefulness. We live with passion and desperation, urgency, Father. And that's what empowers us to keep going and to keep moving and to keep pursuing. And so I pray, Father, that you will give us the courage to stop doing what we've been doing, to press into you, to lean into you for the outcome. Father, everyone who is watching, who's a part of this service, who's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, I pray right now that they will fall to their knees and it will be the same cry of desperation. And they'll just say, I'm giving my life over to you. They trust you for their salvation for their hope for eternity. I pray, God, that they will live their life as well in pursuit of you and your kingdom. We pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.